Would you please pray with me? Prepare us, O Lord, to receive your word, if not by our ears, then by our eyes, or if not by our eyes, then by our mouths, for we know that you want us to taste, see, and hear of your goodness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The second scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew. I will read chapter 14, verses 13 through 21, which you can uh, find in your pew Bibles. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place. The hour is late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not to go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled, and they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full, and those who ate were about five thousand men besides women and children. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's funny how the nature of an object is changed by the way it has come into your hands as a gift or as a commodity. This observation is made by Robin Wall Kimmerer in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass. She gives a simple illustration of wool socks to make her point. The pair of wool socks that I buy at the store are warm and cozy, she writes. I might feel grateful for the sheep that made the wool and the worker who ran the knitting machine, but I have no inherent obligation to those socks as a commodity, as private property. There's no bond beyond the polite exchanged thank yous with the clerk. I have paid for them and our exchange ended the minute I handed her the money. The exchange ends once parity has been established, an equal exchange. They become my property. I don't write a thank you note to J.C. Penney. <laughs> but what if those very same socks were knitted by my grandmother and given to me as a gift? That changes everything. A gift creates ongoing relationship. I will write a thank you note. I'll take good care of them, and if I am a very gracious grandchild, I'll wear them when she visits, even if I don't like them. <laughs> and when it's her birthday, I will surely make her a gift in return. End of quote. 
I imagine all of us could think of similar illustrations to which the value of objects depends on whether we acquired them as gifts or commodities. And thinking about today's two scripture lessons, it seems to me that this is the distinction being drawn. Let's think first about the story from the Gospel of Matthew. So well known for Jesus' miracle of multiplying five loaves and two fish into enough food to feed over 5,000 people with food left over. This story is the only miracle story that made its way into all four Gospels. In the excitement over this miracle, however, we don't want to miss what the disciples and Jesus say in the story. For they are assuming two different economies at work. The disciples, noticing that evening is fast upon them and that the people who followed Jesus out into the desert haven't brought food with them, come to Jesus and say, send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages to buy food for themselves. Jesus has a different idea. He says to them, you give them something to eat. The disciples are assuming a market economy in which food is a commodity to be bought with money. In that economy, the transaction has no value beyond the purchase of food and the food has no value beyond being consumed. They are one and done. Jesus has something different, something more in mind. Jesus assumes a gift economy, an economy in which gifts are given and received. In a gift economy, relationships are formed. And unlike transactions that are one and done, relationships are ongoing. The same point, I think, is made by the prophet Isaiah when he says, Hey, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. He goes on to differentiate between wine, milk, and bread that are commodities that we buy to consume and those that, without price, are gifts from God with whom we have an everlasting covenantal relationship. In both of these passages from scripture, we find that what Jesus and God really desire is for us to be in relationship with them and with one another. They know that giving and receiving gifts establishes relationships, and these relationships are themselves generative. Relationships have the potential to generate more giving and more receiving. And in this way, gifts are dynamic. Passed on from hand to hand, they grow richer every time they are given. Their value increases with their passage. In his book, The Gift, writer Lewis Hyde explains how the expression Indian giver arose from a cross-cultural misinterpretation between peoples who operated with two very different economic assumptions. When I was growing up, the expression Indian giver 
was a pejorative term for someone who gives something and then wants to take it back. According to Lewis Hyde, the term originated in the misinterpretation of what a gift is. When gifts were given by native inhabitants to colonial settlers, the settlers understood that the gifts were intended to be retained as private property. They thought that to give those gifts back or away would have been offensive. The indigenous people, however, understood the value of gifts differently. According to their ancient teachings, whatever we have been given is supposed to be given away again. For them, it was an offense for the gifts they had given not to circulate back to them. These are two very different views, and the conflict between them has, as we know, led to terrible consequences for the indigenous peoples, with so many gifts that made up their gift economy stripped away. You and I live with one foot in a realm managed by a gift economy and with one foot in a realm managed by a market economy. We are quite familiar with both and have been shaped by both. The market economy has encroached upon nearly every arena of our lives. Nearly, but not all. The two arenas in which gift economies still operate strongly are the two that are most precious to me, my family and the church. These are the two households in which I was raised to know what it feels like to live in a gift economy and where I have come to appreciate how valuable it is for our life together. The church is based on a gift economy. Theologian Catherine Tanner calls it an economy of grace. The church sees all of creation as a gift from God. The church also recognizes God's covenant to be a gift. The church certainly understands Christ to be a gift. We didn't earn any of these gifts, creation, covenant, Christ. We certainly do not deserve them. They come to us through no action of our own, but they are not free. In God's economy of grace, gifts create relationships that engender responsibility and reciprocity toward God and one another. This may sound highly theoretical, theological, but in reality, we all know what it feels like because it's quite natural. It's based on our human nature. When we receive a gift, it's only natural that our hearts swell up with gratitude. Then it's only natural that our gratitude would move us also to be generous to others. That is how the economy of grace works. I see this economy of grace at work every day here among you. I see its multiplying effects. 
The ministry of first place Swarthmore is an example of this. Generous individuals, organizations, and congregations have donated money to pay for the monthly rent of an apartment that provides temporary housing for refugee families. The value of these donations is multiplied greatly by this community whose dedicated volunteers understand that gifts are dynamic. Being in relationship with each refugee family by serving as an English conversation partner, giving them a tour of the town, helping them to polish a resume, driving them to their driver's license test. All these caring efforts grow the economy of grace that enriches not just the lives of these newly arrived refugees, but also our whole community. When Jesus speaks about how we might grow into the kingdom of God, he speaks about a mustard seed that grows into a big tree, a tiny bit of yeast that leavens a whole loaf of bread, and five loaves and two fish that feed over 5,000 people, a mundane meal that transforms the ordinary into something extraordinary. When gratitude and generosity are engendered, what starts out very small can become something great. This is our hope and prayer. May it be so. Amen.